morning, everyone. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. If you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's page number 914 to 915. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God." In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Hello, there we go. Hello everyone, uh, it's uh, so good to be with you today. Um, thank you to Kerry for reading our scripture. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the main characters is a boy named Eustace. Some of you may have read this book, in which case you're probably already aware of who Eustace is and the story of his transformation. However, for those of you less familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, let me provide you with some context. Eustace starts out as a rather unlikable character. He's selfish and cruel, and is therefore unable to treat his fellow companions with any respect or love. In fact, he sees them not as friends, but as fiends or enemies, rejecting their repeated efforts to help and protect him, and instead, he becomes increasingly hateful towards them. Desperate to escape their company, Eustace seizes an opportunity to embark on a solitary excursion while he and his companions have taken refuge on an island. It is while he is on this adventure that he encounters a dragon, though he does so only moments before the dragon dies. Before Eustace has a chance to process what has just happened, 
That is the fact that a dragon has literally fallen dead right in front of him. A heavy thunderstorm causes him to seek shelter in a cave nearby. As it turns out, this cave was the dragon's lair and was therefore full of plenty of stolen treasure. Eustace, being a very greedy young boy, decides that he's going to just fill his pockets which is with as much diamond rings and gold coins as he can, and he places a very expensive bracelet on his arm. He then lies down to rest and subsequently falls asleep, only to awaken to a very disturbing truth. He is turned into a dragon. As Lewis puts it, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, Eustace had become a dragon himself. In essence, he had become on the outside what he always was on the inside. Now fast forward a few days. Eustace is still a dragon who's becoming increasingly de despondent and depressed as he faces the prospect that he may never become a boy again. One night, however, he's visited by the great lion, Aslan. The lion who saved and rules over Narnia. He comes to Eustace and takes him to a part of the island where there is a well that is filled with water so clear and so inviting, words cannot adequately describe it. There, Aslan tells him to remove what he is wearing, and at first, Eustace is confused. I'm not wearing any clothes. But upon realizing that Aslan is referring to his dragon skin, he begins to quickly and eagerly scratch off the scales. And he sheds his skin and steps out of it. His excitement is soon replaced with disappointment, however, because he looks down at the water beside him and he sees the reflection of a dragon staring back at him. And so again, he scratches off another layer, still hopeful that his efforts would turn him into a boy once more. However, the result is the same. He tries again, this time desperately, though, not eagerly. For he longed to be a boy, but it seemed more likely that he would remain a dragon forever. It's at this point that Aslan stops him and he says, I must be the one to remove your skin. Aslan begins to scratch at Eustace's dragon exterior, going much deeper than Eustace was able to go himself. After some time, Eustace steps out of the dragon skin like he had done before. Only this time, something felt different. He felt raw, not rough. He felt tender, not tough. Before he's able to process what has just happened, he's picked up by Aslan and thrown into the pool of water beside him. Although he initially feels a painful stinging sensation in his skin, it's soon replaced with the feeling of absolute relief and unbridled joy. Eustace emerges from the water a boy, not a dragon. Though he had once been covered by dragon skin for what seemed to him like an eternity, 
he now stood before Aslan, who gently reclothed him, reclothed his restored human body. I love this scene, not simply because Lewis so beautifully articulates the story of Eustace's remarkable transformation and restoration, but because such a story reflects the transformation of those who belong to God. Now, before we look at this more and spend some time in Romans 6, which was just read for us earlier, let me just say a quick prayer for us. God, we thank you that you are here with us, that you are um, among us, and you, you're the one who is shaping us. You are the one who opens our hearts so that we can receive this. And so, God, I pray that the words that are spoken today would touch us in a way that you intend, that we would be changed by the message that you have for us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So this summer, we've been going through a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome, otherwise known as the Book of Romans. In his letter, Paul addresses Christians living in Rome, exhorting them to join together as a unified family and create a home in imperial Rome. That is, the church in Rome, which was comprised of so many different people who, had, who were of different ethnicities, religious backgrounds, cultures, were called to come together and to live out the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was, as a, way, this was a way to resist the principles, the, good, the shallow and hollow good news that undergirded the Roman Empire. Now, the gospel which Paul unashamedly preached to the Romans was a gospel of grace and peace not a gospel of condemnation and fear. For we who were once enemies of God, who were separated from him because of our brokenness and incessant sinfulness, had been redeemed by the power, redeemed from the power of that brokenness and reconciled to God because of Jesus Christ's death. In the first five chapters of Romans, Paul kind of outlines this in various ways, going into a lot of detail. But as we come to our passage today in Romans 6, Paul shifts a little bit, and he begins to address them about how to pra what this practically means for them. They belong to God. What does that mean? How are their day-to-day -day lives impacted by the gospel, which says that they are redeemed by God because of God's grace and faithfulness? Paul starts out in verse 1 by asking this question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This question undoubtedly arises from the previous statement in Romans 5, verse 21, where Paul says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In this statement, Paul is making the assertion 
that the presence or effect of human sin will never overcome or undermine the abounding and all-encompassing effects of God's grace, something Greg spoke to us about last week. Nevertheless, there is a possibility that one might argue that Paul is saying, in order to continue to receive God's gift of grace, or in order to receive a greater measure of God's grace, one must keep on sinning. After all, is it not true that where sin is present, grace is ever more present and abundant? However, Paul immediately denounces this conclusion. He says that it is entirely inappropriate to understand grace in this way. And so for the next 13 verses, he goes on to comprehensively explain why such thinking is such a gross misunderstanding of what the life of a redeemed person looks like. Paul, in verse 2, begins his rebuttal against people who would argue that we must sin more in order to receive more grace. And he poses a rhetorical question. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Death is something that is definitive and final. A person cannot continue to live on this earth once they have died because death marks the end of their life. It's a line which cannot be crossed when it is drawn in the sand. Thus, for Paul to say that we have died to sin, he is in essence saying that it is just as impossible to live in sin once we have received the gift of God's grace as it is for a dead person to continue living once they have died. Now, it's important for us to take a moment to clarify what Paul means when he speaks about sin in these verses. After all, there's a glaring problem staring at us in the face. Sinlessness, not sinfulness, is what is impossible for us. And yet it appears at first glance that Paul is saying the opposite. That because we have died to sin, we should sin no longer. Last week, Greg spoke about how in the first century, sin was predominantly understood in terms of a debt which was owed. As we come to our passage today, Paul continues with this understanding of sin as a debt, only he expands on it, speaking about sin as a ruling or reigning master who insists upon the allegiance of those who are indebted to him. Listen to the language Paul uses just a few verses later in Romans 6, verses 6 to 7, when referring to sin. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, but anyone who has died has been set free from sin. When we hear these verses, what is it that we can infer about sin? I find it helpful to picture it like this. 
Imagine yourself as someone who becomes enslaved to or who is ruled by another person because of a debt you owe them but cannot afford to pay off. Now imagine that that other person to whom you owe a debt is sin itself. In this way, sin is like a master who enslaves or rules over those who cannot afford to pay the price their sin demands. When we understand sin in this way, as a reigning power or as a slave master, it becomes clear that Paul's statement, we are those who have died to sin, does not mean that receiving the gift of grace causes us to sin no more. Rather, it means that we're no longer subject to the power or the reign of sin. There is a transfer that takes place when we receive God's grace, namely that sin ceases to be our master because we are brought under a different rule, under God's rule. Thus, it is as though we have died to sin because although sin was once our master, it, is, it no longer has authority over us. It's no wonder that Paul thinks it's absurd that we would knowingly sin to receive more grace. We can't. We've died to its power. But how? How does this death occur? How does this transfer take place? Paul answers this question in verses 3 and 4. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism in order through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. In the first century context, the time when Paul was writing this letter to the Romans, Baptism would have been understood as some kind of initiation rite. That is, a public act which accompanied a person's or a household's conversion to Christianity. Now, it's important to note that baptism was never assumed to be a requirement for one's redemption. For redemption from sin was achieved solely by God's grace alone. Nevertheless, Virtually all Christians in the first century, whether Jew or non-Jew, would have participated in the ritual of baptism so as to demonstrate their commitment to God and signify that they now belonged to him, to signify this transfer that had taken place. With this in mind, when Paul refers to those who have been baptized into Christ, he is speaking about all those who now belong to God, those who by God's grace have been redeemed from the tyranny of sin. This is why Paul can say of those who have been baptized into Christ that they have also been united with Christ, for their identity is now that of those who belong to Jesus Christ. More than simply being baptized into Christ, 
the believer is also baptized into Christ's death. In other words, as the believer is immersed into the, ba- into the waters of baptism, so they are immersed into or participate in the death of Jesus Christ. And since the death, of, since the death that Christ died, he died to sin, so we who belong to God and who partake in Christ's death also die to sin. And therefore, we now live in and for God. Now, not only do we live for God in this life because we are partakers in Christ's death and have therefore died to sin, but we can look forward to eternal life because we are also participants in Christ's resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is our hope. That although each of us will face, one de- will face death one day, the power of death has been defeated because Christ was raised to life. He defeated death. And so as partakers in his resurrection, we too can look forward to a time when we will be resurrected. Now, if you look at the verses that we've been looking at, Romans 6 verses 1 to 14, you'll notice that up until verse 10, Paul has been speaking as though he's describing something that simply is, not something that may or might or must be. In other words, Paul is making statements which unambiguously communicate what he believes to be true and real. We are those who have died to sin. We were baptized into his death. We have been crucified with him, and so on and so forth. All these statements assume that the truth which they profess is a certain and realized reality. But as we come to verse 11, there is a shift in Paul's language. He now begins to instruct his readers about how to live out the spiritual truths outlined in the verses that came before it. Paul writes in verses 11 to 13, Count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. Now, before we go further into these verses, I want us to take a moment to consider how Paul orders his argument. That is, why he places 
why he speaks of verses 1 to 10 first and then verses 11 to 13 after. First, he establishes the truth of who we are in light of God's grace. That is, we, having been baptized into Christ's death, have died to sin, and therefore we belong to God. That is our identity. It is only once that Paul has affirmed the belongingness of the believer that he goes on to provide some instruction about how to live as those who have died to sin, as those who do belong to God. The reason why this ordering is so crucial is because it highlights that righteous action, doing that which is right and good and just, is born out of an experience of having received God's grace, not the means by which we earn God's grace. Too often, I seek to find a sense of belonging in God by trying to do what is right. I hope that my good behavior will somehow earn me a seat at God's table and a place in his family. Perhaps you find yourself doing this as well, trying to gain or attain favor with God in order that you might taste, even for just a moment, the glorious riches of his grace. The reality is, however, that there is already a seat at God's table and a place in his family for each of us. And the favor that we so desire has already been freely offered to us. And it's not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done on our behalf through Christ. God invites us to simply come as we are in order that we might be fed and belong because of God's grace. You see, it's only when we recognize and accept this invitation to come and eat and belong that we're able to faithfully live out the mandate to be instruments of God's righteousness and justice, albeit imperfectly. Do you remember the story about Eustace, which I told at the beginning of the sermon? Eustace was transformed from a dragon into a boy, not because of his own efforts, but because of what Aslan did. It was Aslan who stripped the skin which had enslaved Eustace to an existence as a dragon, an existence of despairing loneliness and hopelessness, an existence contrary to that which he was created for. It was Aslan who cast him, or rather baptized him, into the pool of water nearby, so as to confirm his new identity as a restored boy, not a greedy dragon. It was Aslan who reclothed him as he emerged from that pool as a new creation. 
One cannot deny that this restoration which Eustace underwent was entirely because of Aslan's gracious actions towards him. And yet the story doesn't end there. Listen to what Lewis says as he narrates the end of the scene. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say, from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate though, he began to be a different boy. Do you see the significance of what Lewis is saying here? Do you notice the tension to which Lewis's words allude? Eustace was both different and becoming different. Paul speaks of a similar tension in our passage. While we are those who have died to sin, and this is a certain reality, we must still count ourselves or remind ourselves that we are dead to sin. While we are those who have been set free from the power of sin, we must persist in making every effort to resist letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. While we are those whose old selves have been crucified with Christ, we must continue to offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness and justice, not as instruments of wickedness. How is it that we can allow ourselves to live in and embrace this tension? For in order that we, for in order that we might join together as a unified body to serve as God's instruments of righteousness and justice in our world, we must be able to live in this tension. To be honest, I don't really know the answer to this question about how we can live in this tension. What I do know, at least in my own life, is that I have a tendency to swing from one extreme to the next. One moment my focus falls entirely on the certain truth that because of Christ's death, all those who belong to God have died to sin. And so I downplay the influence of sin in my own life and in the world at large. And I neglect, sorry, I downplay the influence of sin and in turn I fail to consciously resist it. Something which is necessary if I have any hope of continuing to offer myself as an instrument of righteousness, not of wickedness. And then in the next moment, I find myself on the other extreme, so caught up trying to challenge sin's influence, whether in my own life or on a larger systemic level, that I neglect the reality of God's grace. And I forget that sin has been disarmed of its power because of God's grace. 
And so again, I find myself asking this question, how can we live in the tension between freedom from the power of sin and the reality that sin is still present? I think the answer, at least in part, can be found in verse 14, where Paul declares that sin shall no longer be our master because we are under grace. Sin shall no longer be our master because we are under grace. God's grace is the foundation on which we can begin to live our lives differently because it was by God's grace that our old selves were first transformed into our new selves. It is by his grace, God's grace, that redemption from sin's reign was made possible, and it is by his grace that this redemption continues to manifest righteousness in the lives of those who have been redeemed. The question then becomes, what role does God's gift of grace play in our lives? I'm going to give us a moment to pray about this question. I encourage you to ask God to reveal to you the areas in your life where you need grace to bring new life and growth, to bring revival and healing in order that we can fulfill our mandate as the church to be instruments of God's righteousness and justice. Let's take a moment now. Gracious God, we are humbled by the fact that you see us, that you know us, and you love us. That in, in spite of our brokenness, our tendency to rebel against you, you come back to us every day with new blessings, blessing us with your grace. God, I thank you that your grace strengthens us. 
It empowers us to be who you call us to be as the church. And so, God, I pray that your grace would fall on us anew, that we would be refreshed from deep within our beings, that we would know who we are in you, that we are your children, whom you love, and with whom you are so pleased. And that from this identity as your children, we would be able to live out your grace in our lives, in our relationships, and in the way that we care for our world. We pray these things in your name.